0: Thank you so much for joining us yet again for another evening of spooky tales seems to be um, this has been our our spot to meet i'm really excited because tonight we're going to be doing some ghost stories and i have a little twist too for you so we're going to start with the story of the haunted road and this story of the haunted road that i'm going to share with you the area of Blackwoods and Catherines Hill is a short stretch of road along Route 182 between the towns of Franklin and Cherryfield, Maine. The road presents travelers with some of the most beautiful and scenic country in Down East Maine. The area is mountainous with crags of rock above shimmering bodies of water that stream into valleys below. Catherines Hill has been a legendary location for nearly 100 years. It is when the sun goes down and the long shadows of night have taken root and a breeze seems to stir up more than just the leaves on the trees. When the road is quiet and there is no thrum of cars traveling by, the story and, perhaps, the ghost of Catherine creep from the shadows to blend the past with the present and to leave the late-night traveller haunting stories that they can't understand. This tale is rooted in the late 1800s, when a newlywed Catherine and her husband were riding their horse-drawn carriage towards Cherryfield along the road. When a strange thick fog seemed to come out of nowhere and envelop their carriage. Honestly, if you're anywhere on the coast of Maine, strange fogs roll in all the time. Something spooked the horses in that fog and the carriage went tumbling off the road, overturned in a ravine and came to rest against a tree. Catherine had been beheaded, yet her head was nowhere to be found. When the accident was discovered the next day, an extensive search ensued for her husband's body, but it, much like Catherine's head, was never found. Was there foul play at hand? Perhaps a murder some speculated. Other versions of how this stretch of road became haunted tell that the road was the ideal connection for bootleggers to take during prohibition days. Perhaps during a midnight whiskey run, there was a fatal accident, and that was where her story came from. It is rather odd that one will find a perfectly preserved Model T Ford in the bottom of nearby Fox Pond. Could that be an old artifact connected with her story? Many years later, one of the locals said she was driving back from Bangor on what was a clear night. As she approached the hill, once again, there was a strange fog that seemed to linger alongside the shoulder of the road and intensified at the top of the hill. Within the dense fog, she noticed a figure of a woman taking shape, wearing a white gown and a shawl around her shoulders. I wore my shawl tonight for Catherine. As she lingered in the fog, the woman immediately slammed on her brakes for fear of hitting her. But instead, she drove right through her. She looked in the rearview mirror and saw the figure had dissolved into the mist. A grandmotherly woman named Abby told a story of an encounter she had had with the ghost when she was a child. Suffering from a bad throat infection, her father tucked her in the front seat of the car for a ride to the local doctor. Huddled in a blanket, Abby and her dad found themselves coming up on Catherine's Hill. He noticed a woman in a long white dress standing at the edge of darkness along the side of the road. He cautiously pulled the car over and offered the lonely hitchhiker a ride. He leaned the seat forward and the silent woman climbed into the back seat. They drove off down the road and just a couple of minutes later Abby's dad stopped the car abruptly and looked into the back seat only to discover There was no one there. He looked out the back window and he couldn't believe his eyes. He saw the woman standing alongside the edge of the road again. He got out of the car, walked her over to the car, and leaned the seat forward once again. And the woman again climbed to the back seat. Abby noticed the woman was wearing old timey high top, coal black boots with laces. The car started down the eerily quiet road once again, and within minutes, Abby's dad stopped the car and jumped out. He ran around the car, opened up the door, pushed the seat forward, and there was no one there. But the seat and the floor were wet with rainwater. Abby said she would never forget that experience. Another close encounter with the mysterious Catherine came from a man named Dale who was a musician on his way back from Bar Harbor one night. He was just cresting the hill when he saw a young woman standing still in the very center of the road. He stopped the car and rolled down the window to see if he could help her. And she had asked him for a ride to Bar Harbor. He thought for a moment that he didn't want to head all the way back to Bar Harbor. As he was looking at her, he could faintly see the white line in the road behind her. Frightened, he realized that she was partially transparent. He revved the engine and drove off. When he reached the bottom of the hill, he thought that maybe he had been so tired that his eyes were playing tricks on him. So he probably decided at that point, what would be best was to go back and check on the poor girl. Thoughts flooded his mind. How long had she been out there? Did she live nearby and what caused her to be on the road in the middle of the night without even a coat on? He turned the car around, drove up the hill, and the girl had just vanished in a matter of moments. He decided to head home after the mysterious encounter. The next morning, a business call had Dale driving through the same stretch of road from the night before. As he came to the top of the hill, Dale was shocked to see an overturned and totaled van in the same spot he saw the spectral ghost. It was clear that there had been a fatality in the accident. Is the road cursed? Does the spirit of Catherine linger there for some now long forgotten reason? The legends tell us that if you see her ghost alongside the road, that you must stop and ask if she needs any kind of help. For otherwise, Catherine's ghost will see to it that there is a curse enforced. There have been 33 accidents in the same exact stretch of road where Catherine's spirit has been seen by dozens of residents over the years. Should you find yourself traveling through Cherryfield, perhaps you want to stop at the local winery where they produce a wine very appropriately named Catherine's Hill. Perhaps a toast to the ghost over a campfire on a foggy night will keep you safe as the shadows draw closer at the end of the day, and you make your way back up Catherine's Hill. So what do you think? Do you think it was a curse? Do you think that she lingers there waiting for a ride? Maybe to the other side? Do you think the story gets better? Maybe with a little bit of wine? We call that spirits and spirits. Whenever we we talk about going for a, a cocktail after a tour, we call it spirits and spirits. So, you can now have Spirits to the Toast of Catherine. Hmm, very interesting story. And what's amazing about this particular tale is there are many, many people that have gone on record. They've talked to the local news, um, talked to the radio stations over the years, and all described the same exact story. In fact, I don't know if you're aware, if you've heard the story of Catherine Sill before, because believe it or not, the Weather Channel actually did a um, little video reenactment of this. So um, they, I think it was in um, one of their programs, something about, um, you know, strange weather. And of course, we're here in New England and strange weather is in our bloodstream. We know that weather is very changeable but um, they did the story of Catherine's Hill. So how cool is that? Do you think she's really there? Do you think people are are just tired and perhaps maybe blacking out along this stretch of road? I'll leave it for you to decide, but there are um, an awful lot of stories of haunted roads. So um, one of the things that I was doing last year, I started doing a presentation called Haunted Road Trips of New England. And I started gathering all of these stories that I had picked up in my own travels and um, put them in presentation form and adding to that places to stay that are haunted. Um, and of course, places to eat that are haunted so you can get the full haunted road trip experience. All right. So let's get on, um, right into our next story. As I've mentioned, um, you know, before, in case you didn't know, I do ghost tours in Portsmouth um, and York and pretty much all over the seacoast here. Um, Going into, oh my gosh, almost 20 years of um, doing ghost tours, although we have a really, really late start this year. York Village is an amazing little village. Um, Sometimes when we go over there, and do our ghost tours. Our tour guests will sometimes say, does Stephen King know about this place? Because it is, it's very quiet. It's very colonial. Um, sometimes when we're walking through the cemetery, the church bell will chime in the background and people had even forgotten that the church bell chimed at the beginning of the tour. So there is one um, particular building that really has a presence. Now, there are a lot of buildings with um, ghost stories and folklore, as is the burial ground over in um, in York, called the old burial ground. Um, But this one has been moved. And when you stand in front of it, there's something about it. If you're any kind of sensitive to spirits, you might feel like the building is almost looking right back at you. And the building that I'm talking about is um, the Old Jail in York. So it's up on this little rocky cliff right there. Um, It's just to the left of the Emerson Wilcox House. In fact, just out in front of the Old York Jail is a replica stocks. And whenever we're over there and we're on the tour, people get very excited to go up in the stocks and have their picture taken. And, of course, I always tell them that if you were put in the stocks back in the day, it would not have been such a happy occasion. For what would have happened is they would have put you in the stocks for three days. People would have come out and thrown all sorts of things at you, shouted at you, and you would have gotten ten lashes with a whip. And if you take a closer look at the bottom of the post where the stock is, you'll notice that there's this strange assemblage of wooden blocks and they're certainly not wide enough for you to get both knees on so you could barely kneel in the stocks so the stocks are out in front of the old york jail and by the way it is spelled after the old british um g-a-o-l and that was the jail for the entire um pretty much province of Maine at the time, because Maine actually was Massachusetts for a while before it split off in the early 19th century. So it was the province of Maine, state of Massachusetts, which you will see on some of the gravestones in York. It'll actually be carved on the stone, York, Massachusetts. So this was the jail for the entire, entire place. And the original jail was built along the York River. And it was moved in the early 1700s, timbers and all, to the top of this rocky crest. Now, the jail was a very interesting place because it's not like the jail that we think of today. And when we get to the ghost stories, you really have to consider all of the people that have been there over the years and the strange circumstances that brought them there. Did that leave some ghost stories in their wake? I'll leave it for you to decide. So if you were brought to the old York jail, of course, you'd be put in the stocks and then you'd be brought inside to one of the dungeon rooms. They weren't called jail cells. They were called dungeon rooms and they were really rudimentary and kind of creepy in their own right. Um, In some cases, they would take and shackle you to the wall or even shackle you to the floor. So you'd be brought into the dungeon room. And of course there was a little window that was cut out at the door to the dungeon room and the window was essentially put there so they could slide food to those who were imprisoned there. So the way it worked is if you were brought to the jail, you would be brought right in front of the jailkeepers family. So they lived right there, the jailkeeper and the assistant jailkeeper. So imagine you're in the middle of dinner, and here comes a prisoner walking right through your kitchen, going off to the dungeon room. So they bring them into the dungeon room and lock them up in there. And of course, when you look at all of the crimes that people were being put in jail for, those are interesting too. Take, for example, the gentleman who was having a fight with his neighbor. They weren't getting along at all, so he decided that he was going to exact some revenge on his neighbor, and he plotted, and he planned, and he came up with this devious plan to actually kill his neighbor's children, and what he had decided to do was to lure them into an actual trap. So underneath a bush, he had dug out this hole, covered it with branches and brambles, And the two children, he lured in and said, if they could go into the bush and chase out the birds, that he would give them some money. So, kids not knowing any better, climbed under the bush and fell into this trap. When they were in the trap, they were pretty far down in the ground and they could not find a way to climb out. So all night long, the kids were in there screaming and crying and nobody had heard them. But the older of the two, the boy managed to claw out a section of dirt and make his way up above the surface. He went and grabbed his sister. Now imagine, this was in the middle of the night, complete darkness, you know, no streetlights, no cars, no nothing. How would they find their way in the darkness? You know what they did? They listened. They listened for the sound of the ocean and they knew if they followed the sound of the ocean, that they could find their way to the beach and someone would find them. So all night long, they found their way through the woods and made it down to the beach. And the next day, of course, the children were found. They implicated the neighbor. The neighbor was brought, given 30 lashes in the stock there. And the device that he had come up with, again, that trap in the ground, became known as the devil's invention. So he was given 30 lashes and essentially told not to return to the community of York, and he was brought to the county line, and under fear of imprisonment, he never came back. So he was there for just a a little while while they were deciding what to do with him and giving him the, the 30 lashes there. Of course, it was also a debtor's prison as well. So imagine your creditor could put you in jail if you had owed them money. Imagine if we still had debtor's prisons today. What an interesting world it would be. Um, There was a sad time in its later history about a woman named um, Patience Boston. And when we look at the story of Patience Boston, a lot of people believe that she might be the reason why there is a ghost there. Patience Boston was half white and half Nauset Indian. And she had come to York from Cape Cod, Massachusetts. At the time, York had a lot of hellfire and brimstone preachers of the day. And Patience wasn't interested in going to church. And the more and more she went about the community ignoring church, which everybody went, people were pretty upset about that. And certainly the minister was the most upset at all, of all. So he made an example out of her. Every time he saw her, he insisted that she needed to come to church to save her immortal soul. She didn't like being made an example out of in any way, shape or form. So she came up with a plan. And her plan was to murder the minister and his entire family. Pardon me. (coughs) So Patience Boston got her chance. What she decided to do was to take the minister's son was 12 years old, came up from behind him, dragged him over to a well, and pushed him into the well. He drowned. Well, everybody knew it was her. They knew that at some point she was going to make good on her threats, and she did. She was brought, of course, to the old York jail, brought out there, given lashes. However, It was quite a problem. Patience Boston was pregnant and she was unmarried, even worse. So they couldn't bring her down to where they used to conduct their hangings. Do you know where they conducted their hangings in York? If you've been on our tour in York, you know that it's where the Stage Neck Inn is. A beautiful inn. The reason why that area is called. The stage neck is because, think about it, stage neck. And that's where they used to bring people down to kick the beam. It wasn't called a hanging. Why was it called kicking the beam? Because when they dropped the floor out, when the body fell, if the leg came up and swept up and kicked the I-beam, then that was a hanging worth coming out for. So it wasn't, are you going to go down and see the hanging? Are you going to go down and see someone kick the beam? So patient's going to be brought down to kick the beam right away because she was pregnant. Now, if you are up a little bit later tonight and you can't sleep because of the ghost stories, don't blame me, I'm I'm just here doing the thing, but you can actually find the jailkeeper's transcripts From his diary online, so if you look up the story again, Patience Boston, you can read part of the story out there and how eventually she decided that she was going to believe in God, her child was adopted into the community, and then she was brought down to kick the beam. So as time went on, the jail ended up being a place for people that were... Disabled people that were outcasts of the community and then finally the jail was closed and that was when they um, built another jail up in Maine and for a few years it was actually abandoned so What to do with this building? Well oddly enough the Historical Society in York is quite old and in the late 1800s they decided it to renovate the building and in 1900 it was opened and is available for tours. Did you know that none other than Mark Twain actually spoke at the dedication for the jail? So you've been able to tour it ever since 1900. So the ghost stories. Well, we've been doing tours um, over in York, I'd say probably now um, 10 years, probably half as long as we've been in Portsmouth. And they're usually just a, a special occasion tour just a few times a year. However, we do notice that sometimes when we're done, um, the police officers will come by because we're right across the street from the jail in the parking lot as we start and finish. And one evening, police officer came by and asked, as we were just finishing up, if we had noticed the window being open in the old jail across the street. And we had just walked across the street after being there. So I looked over and I said, no, I didn't notice. I asked the few tour guests that remained with me if they had seen the window being open and they said no as well. Now mind you, this is probably about 9.30 at night and it was very, very quiet and there's no lights on, no activity over at the jail. So the police officer said, you know, did you see anybody over there? I said, no, you know, not a soul. And then he asked, well, do you wanna go and check it out? And I said, "Um, no, why don't you go? and check it out and let me know what you find. So um, they went over and checked it out and the window has to be propped open in order for it to be open. The door was locked and there was nobody around. Well, come to find out that was a pretty common occurrence that the window would be open. Sometimes there'd be a light on upstairs. And um, several years ago when I was writing my book, um, Haunted York County, I spoke to a gentleman Who worked for the museums of old york back in the 1980s and 1990s and he said that when you went into the old jail the display cases that were there and granted you know they're a little bit old but not ancient that the display case lights would turn off and on and that some people had mentioned that they had sensed another presence in there um people that i've spoken to that are intuitive say you do feel like someone or something is looking at you I personally haven't seen anything other than the strange windows going on over there. However, like I said, when you're standing just below that building, it really does feel like there's something or someone looking at you. So is it the spirit of Patience Boston? Is she still there um, wandering about? Uh, is she still seeking revenge? I don't know. But um, it's one of those places where, you know, all sorts of people were there and they all had very strange stories in many cases. Um, I remember researching the story of a gentleman who figured that he could, you know, make the perfect escape. And the little window that I had mentioned that was in the dungeon room was, you know, very, very small, just, you know, small enough to put food through and he was pretty daring. And he figured that he was slender enough to fit through this little window. So the window within it had a piece of jagged metal, like little teeth in the window. And as he slipped through this window, he cut himself pretty badly on the metal. And he did get out and did get away um, just a little ways. And they found him by following the trail of blood that he had left behind. So, um, of course, he was brought back and had to finish his time there. But yeah, I mean, can you can you just imagine, I mean, the the public whippings that took place there, marching people down from the jail to, of course, um, you know, where people would go and see the hangings at the stage neck. So now every time you go through York, if you're going past the stage neck in, you have to consider, I know where that name came from. It came from the hangings. So, you know, one of the things for us here in New England is we go by places with curious names all the time. And this is one of the things I always tell people when um, they're out on a tour or if we're at a talk. Like, consider the names of streets and locations and is there some sort of history behind it? I mean, Portsmouth is famous for having streets that are related to, um, to our history in the city. However, stage neck in, who knew that's where they did the hangings? So um in season, usually you can go and tour, um, tour the Old York jail. I will tell you that by and large, um, the folks over at the museums of Old York prefer to tell you the history versus the ghost stories, and that's totally fine. But um, I have spoken to quite a few people over there that are more than willing to share their ghost stories. Um I remember one occasion when I was writing um, the Haunted York County book, um, I had popped into a couple of real estate offices and um, I was looking for places that had ghost stories. And one office in particular down near York Beach, they gave me several ghost stories. The only thing they told me was not to reveal the location of where those ghost stories had taken place because some of them were seasonal rentals where people had reported ghosts in, um, in these places. And in fact, one of the real estate agents said he was hearing so many stories about one particular location that he wanted to go and see if it was haunted for himself. So he, him and his girlfriend went and stayed at the place for a long weekend, but he didn't tell her that people had said it was haunted. He just kind of brought her along to see if anything was going to happen. And um he said after, you know, after about the first night they were pretty convinced that um there were books being moved off of the shelves, that the fresh towels that had been put out had disappeared. There were problems with the linens, the lights were going off and on. They heard someone climbing the stairs and it was I mean he was really certain of like the exact time this was happening, what was going on. He said, you know, after a couple of nights, they, they were done. They didn't even stay the extra night. But um, he had told me not to reveal the location of where it was. So honestly, you never know who you're going to walk up on that's going to have a ghost story for you. Um, but I love the, the town of York. York is the second oldest town in, um, in the state of Maine. Kittery is older by just three days. So um, hopefully we'll be back in York real soon telling the stories. It's it's fabulous to tell them here, but there is something about standing beneath that old jail contemplating all of these people that passed through the door and certainly in the stocks over there. All right, so I really hope that you enjoyed that story from one of our tours in York. Probably about uh, five or six years ago, I, um, I met a gentleman in Portsmouth. Um, we were meeting at the North Church for some of our tours, and he was always out there um, with his beautiful wooden flute. And um, he would often play his flute for people who were waiting to have one of our tours begin. And um, I ended up having lunch with him one day and um, found out that he was a fellow storyteller. And he had been doing it all his life, traveled to the country, had some amazing stories. And I ended up um, joining a group for a number of years um, here in Portsmouth called Seacoast Storytellers. Um, storytellers that told stories based on, you know, folklore and myth and real life stories. And um, we actually used to meet at the Portsmouth Public Library once a month. And we had all these different events that we would do, like at the market and other gatherings. And um there was a story that this um this gentleman told all the time that really just spooked me out and every time we met um and we were doing an event, I'd always ask him you know are you are you going to do the story and um he has so so many stories, so it was always a treat um to hear it and um just so you know he is actually out there um on Facebook live every day doing stories um all all sorts of different types again. Folk tales of Native American tales, and um, his name is Papa Joe Godette, and he is absolutely amazing. Sometimes he'll play his flute as part of the stories. Um, but this is a story that I had actually heard from him. Um, I wanted to share it with you. Why? Because it has fabulous ghosts, and um, there's cemetery involved. And it's a a little bit of a different um, type of story for us at New England Curiosities, but it's so good. It's a little bit grisly, as I mentioned. Um, And I don't know if I'll be able to tell it as well as Papa Joe. Um, And I still, uh, I I adore his work and storytelling is just such a wonderful art. So um, I'm dedicating this story to him um, because he is the master of the story of Mary Culhane. And um, you'll see that this story is really, really going to stick with you. So um, I hope that you're settled in. Again, this is going to be a little bit of a different story for us. Um, but oh, just imagine, imagine the, the creepiness of this tale. So all right, so I hope you're ready. So Mary Culhane was the oldest of six children. And her family was very, very poor. Dirt poor, you might actually say, for her father earned a living by digging graves at the graveyard down by the edge of town. One day her father came home and he was bone tired and he sat down in the nearest chair as soon as he walked in the door. And Mary heard him exclaim as he sat down, Oh, I can't believe it! I left my prized blackthorn walking stick back at the tree. It's the only thing my dear father had given to me, and it'll probably be gone by the morning. Mary Colhane ran to get her shawl. I'll get it for you, father. And she ran out the door faster than anybody could stop her. For no one, and I mean no one, went into the cemetery after dark. And indeed, it was dark before she got there. A big moon was coming up just over the horizon as she entered into the cemetery gate. She had been here many times before, and graveyards did not scare her, someone just like me. She carefully walked around the graves, for she had been taught since she was a child not to walk over them, for walking over graves was said to be very bad luck. She picked her way around the graves until she saw her father's walking stick lying against an old oak tree. Why, her father must have stopped there to have his lunch and forgot it. Then Mary Culhane forgot to watch where she was walking, and as she stepped, she fell into an open grave. Now, if you're out on a tour with us, one of the first things I tell you is to watch where you walk, because you may just fall into an open grave." As quickly as she could, Mary got on her hands and knees and was trying to climb out of this open grave. However, all of a sudden, she felt something, or was that someone, crawling along her back and a scary voice whispered in her ear, Ah, Mary Culhane, I've been waiting for you. Now you must take me in town for I hunger for something to eat and something to drink. Mary knew that this was not a good situation and this was a frightening creature. And she could tell it had scaly fingers and its breath just smelled horribly. All of a sudden, Mary had no will of her own, and she was helpless to do what this creature had bade her to do. She reached up to the top of the grave, hands into the dirt, pulling at the lawn and the grass and the rocks with all of her strength to lift her up out of the grave. It's almost as if she felt the weight of the world on her shoulders. But somehow she managed to climb up out of the grave onto the grass and she laid there for a moment while the creature, trying to climb out of the grave after her, screamed after her. Get up, Mary Culhane! Get up and take me into town! Mary slowly got up and the creature climbed right up onto her back. And once again, she felt completely helpless. So she started down the hill towards the village. Now they came to the road where the first house appeared and the creature said, now Mary Colhane, take me into this house so I may feed. Mary reached for the first step of the house, started to climb up to the second step and was ready to climb up to the third step when the creature cried out, not here, Mary Colhane, for I sense the smell of holy water. Mary stepped down the steps and continued down the road and went up to the next house. As she approached the house, the creature on her back said, now Mary Colhane, bring me inside this house. So she started up the steps. But once again, as she got up to the third step of the house, the creature cried in agony. Mary Colhane, take me away for I sense the stench of holy water. Mary once again retreated and stepped back down the stairs and started up the road again until they came up to the third house. She took the first step, the second step, and then the third. The creature didn't say a single word this time. Take me into the kitchen, Mary, and find me something to eat. Mary went inside the house, walked down the darkened hallway into the kitchen, and there she let the creature off of her back and sat him over in a chair. Quickly, Mary Culhane, I don't have much time. Mary looked all around, and finally she said, I'm sorry, all I can find is some oatmeal and some dirty water. Ah, Mary Culhane, I will teach these people not to leave anything out for me. Let me again up on your back, the creature said. Once again, Mary was compelled to do that. So onto her back, this horrifying creature climbed. The next thing he said is, now take me up the stairs. So Mary stepped out of the kitchen and started to climb up the stairs. And inside her head, Mary was screaming, no, no because she knew the family that lived in this house. In fact, the three boys that lived upstairs in one of the bedrooms were actually her classmates and they were fast asleep up there. As much as she wanted to turn around, she was under this creature's control. So Mary continued down the hallway. Slowly, she made her way into one of the bedrooms. Now, don't forget the moon was full and it was shining its light into the room and she could see the silhouette of the silhouettes of the boys sleeping in the beds and she was absolutely terrified but there wasn't much that she could do with the creature being on her back and so she started to approach these figures sleeping in the bed and all of a sudden the creature slid off of her back climbed onto the floor and went over to each of the sleeping boys and he took out a sharp knife. Now remember I told you it might be a little little gory. He took out a sharp knife and stabbed each of their fingers and collected their blood into a little vial and with each drop of blood you could see. The first one, their breathing stopped. The second drop of blood, their heart stopped. And with the third drop of blood, all life had left their bodies. So he had collected it in this, in this vial and climbed back up onto Mary's back. She's absolutely terrified at this time. And he said, let's get back down to the kitchen so we may feast. Mary, very sadly... Climbed back down the stairs with the creature on her back. Went into the kitchen, and this creature once again climbed off her back. Took the vial of blood, mixed it in with the oatmeal, and told Mary Culhane to eat the oatmeal with him. Eat, eat. Hey, no, no, she said, I can't, I can't, and I won't. The creature insisted that she eat as he sat there and ate the bloody oatmeal. So Mary had a handkerchief that had been tied around her neck and she pretended between her shawl and her handkerchief to eat. But she had actually taken the bloody oatmeal and put it down into her handkerchief. Ah, Mary Colhain, I see you are done. Now clean up this place so no one will know that we were here. Mary reached for the empty bowls and washed them out, and when the creature wasn't looking, she emptied out her shawl and her kerchief, never noticing, and she put the bowls back in the cabinet. But all of a sudden, the creature said, hurry, Mary Cohen, I must get back to my grave before morning. So she walked over, allowed the creature to climb up onto her back, and they started to walk out of the house. However, the creature told her that they could not walk out the same way that they had come in. Tis the way they say for all evil creatures, that they must take a different path. So instead of going back out the front door, Mary went out the back door. And as she was going out the back door, the creature climbed up on his back, on her back quite comfortably, and Mary looked out over the horizon And she said, I see three hills. And the creature says, oh, those are the haunted hills. And he says, do you know why they're haunted, Mary Colhane?" He says, I'll tell you why. Because buried in that middle mound is all of the gold and silver that the evil creatures had gathered over the years. But only the dead know of it. So Mary Colhane now started to fear for her own life now that he had shared this bit of where this treasure was. So the creature insisted that they get back as the moon was starting to set in the western sky. So they quickly approached the cemetery as she moved much faster, this time getting back than when she had walked in, when all of a sudden a rooster crowed. Ah, Mary Culhane, what is that awful noise? Mary said, oh, it's nothing, it's nothing, it's just the the barking of a dog. Quickly, Mary Culhane, I feel myself weaken, the creature said. Mary could see the oak tree and she saw the open grave and she slowly walked towards it, very slowly. And as she did, she could see the sunlight breaking through the sky ahead, and the first light of the morning sun broke into the graveyard and the rooster crowed three more times. Mary felt the creature fall off of her shoulders and down into the pit of the grave. And as it did, the creature shouted out, Ah, Mary Colhane! if I were to know that you were to live, I would have never have told you of the gold. And suddenly she felt the pressure and the energy of that creature release from her. And she felt her will change. She seemed to have her will back once again. And of course, she, she knew of the gold. So she grabbed the walking stick, hurried home. The <laughs> minute she got home, she fell into bed, basically in a dead sleep. When after a few hours, her mother rushed into the room, woke her up. And Mary Colhana told her that she had these dreams of a very evil creature. And she could see that there were specks of blood on her clothing. Her hair was matted and tangled and her eyes were all dark. Hmm. Something else seemed to be strange here. Was it really just a dream? Well, the mother told Mary to get a little more sleep, to clean up and that that evening they were going to go over to a friend's house for dinner and that house just happened to be the one with the three boys. Mary Clahane couldn't even fall back asleep. She was thinking about what had just happened. Well, she was so tired from the experience she did end up falling asleep and she dreamt of the evil creature, she dreamt of the blood, the boys, and she realized that it wasn't a dream. So her thoughts were, hmm, what could she do? How could she fix this situation? She remembered that as they were walking back to the graveyard, she had asked the evil creature if there was some way that those boys could have lived. And the creature had just laughed at her and had said that there was a way, but... There was no way because she had eaten the oatmeal with the blood, but he didn't know she hadn't eaten the oatmeal. And she had forgotten that she was so tired and so excited to get back at home. She saw that in her dream. So when she realized that, she got herself dressed. She went down with her mother. They went over to the boys. And of course, the entire village was there trying to console the sad parents for what they thought were their three dead children. She ran up to the door and she knocked on the door and she said, Please, please, let me inside. And of course, the parents said, No, Mary, what is inside is not fit for you to see. Mary said, But you don't understand. I know a way to bring them back. Please let me in, I beg you. Ah, Mary, if I could only let you see my three sons. If I could only have them back, I would give you anything and anything at all. What do you know? Mary said, I ask for nothing, only that I go in the house alone. Well, and the father cleared the path. Mary walked into the house down the darkened hallway past the kitchen. And as she looked into the kitchen, she opened up the cabinet that had the bowl. There was the spoon. She went upstairs and she saw the lifeless form of the three boys. She went over and put the spoon up to their lips and the little bit of blood that she had had on her shirt, she had touched it to her scarf. And when she put the spoon back to the boy's mouth, they began to breathe. Their hearts started to beat and all life came back into their body. She ran outside, got the parents, got everybody, brought them back in the house. There was such rejoicing going on. And the three boys were very alive and well. And there was a celebration like none had ever seen before. After a couple of nights, the boys were still well. The father had come over to Mary's house and said, Mary, you made me the happiest man ever to live. You gave me back my boys, and I want to give you something, anything, name it, please. Well, said Mary, would you deed me the land behind your house, the one with the three hills? I'd give you anything you want, said the boy's father. And so he signed over the property. Mary got older. She ended up marrying one of the three boys and they built their house right on that center hill. And underneath the house was all of the gold that she could have ever needed, all of the treasure for the rest of her life. So that was the story of Mary Colhane. I'm gonna make you wonder about eating oatmeal now, right? So um, I had first heard that story, like I said, from um, Papa Joe Gaudet. There's a lot of different versions um, of it out there. I really like it. Again, you've got the cemetery, the specter, um, poor Mary who's caught in the middle and has to figure out what to do. And um, it's just it's just kind of in the great style of old storytelling. So I really hope you enjoyed it. I hope it didn't scare you too much. Um, probably you're all going to dump out your oatmeal now, not eat it. Find me on Instagram at RoxyZW for pictures of gravestones and spooky houses. I'll see you soon.